Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And we get to tell you stories about Pennsylvania. And boy, oh boy, are we excited to do that. (laughs) And on top of that, I'm super excited about what we're drinking. Yes, and you've got the paranormal, so what are we drinking? Eggnog. Eggnog. (laughs) I'm just going to jump right to it, guys. We're drinking eggnog. It's not Christmas. No, but this is Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay. Original brand, eggnog. It is made with rum, brandy, and blended whiskey. Ooh. Just poured it in a glass. Ooh. Easy peasy. And I love eggnog. I do too. So good choice. Thank you. It's, you know, it's almost fall. (laughs) So uh, it's kind of a seasonal. Yeah, crap. I love eggnog. So just enjoy it. (laughs) Cheers, mom. Cheers. Mm. Oh, my God. Gosh, I love eggnog. I don't know yeah, why, but I now all of a sudden downstairs. I feel like I'm going to turn around and it's snowing outside. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I love the snow. I love the heat of a fireplace while it's snowing <laughs> no, outside. No, I love the heat outside. <laughs> I love sun. I don't know why I left the bottle downstairs. I'm going to text Alex and tell him to bring it to me. <laughs> it's really good. There's no calories while you're drinking Podcasting. with killer hangover. No. <laughs> So I know I just like jumped right into it, but I was really anxious to drink it. (laughs) My kids went down very easy tonight and I was like, mom, let's go record. Come on, come on, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Move it. Move it. (laughs) I just jumped right into it, guys. I am so excited to drink this. And I know why. And I'm requesting more for my husband as we speak. And I said, can you please bring me the eggnog bottle in the fridge? It's behind the salsa because, you know, I have to give him direct directions. (laughs) Ah, so I'm just going to enjoy this, Mom. Tell me a story. I tell you a story about the angel of death. Oh. (laughs) Good feelings just (laughs) left the building. (laughs) In 2004, the Patient Safety Act increased hospitals' responsibilities for reporting serious, preventable, adverse events. And in 2005, the Enhancement Act was a supplement to the Patient Safety Act, I know this is a lot of words right now, but it Mm -hmm. does tie in. Hi, honey. Thank you. Reach. (laughs) Thank you, sweetie. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a good husband. (laughs) My lazy butt didn't want to get up. (laughs) Well, it's a little difficult. So that was a lot of big words. Sorry for the interruption. I'm not sure where I left off. (laughs) He was pulling a rock out of his pants. (laughs) Nothing that exciting. Okay. And in 2005, the Enhance Enhancement Act was a supplement to the Patient Safety Act. I know this is a lot of words right now, but it'll all tie in. Promise. This act required hospitals to report certain details about their employees to the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs. It also mandated that Complaints and disciplinary records relating to patient care be kept for at least seven years. Laws were also adopted that allowed and gave protection to employers to give honest appraisals of workers' job performance. This seems to make perfect sense, right? I mean... What? (laughs) Gosh, I wonder I saw the empty stare. 
Dumb it, it down for me, mom. An employer what? An employer should be able to give an honest appraisal yes. of their employees. Yeah, work, why wouldn't they? Right? Yeah. But that wasn't the case before 2004. Mm. Unfortunately, before these safeguards were installed, employers were afraid of a lawsuit if they gave their bad employees a truthful reference. Well, that's not cool. Honesty is always the best policy. Or even investigated a questionable incident. Many states did not even give investigators the legal authority to look into where an employee had previously worked. This all changed due in large part to a nurse by the name of Charles Cullen. Oh, buckle your seatbelts. We're going on another crazy ride. <laughs> <laughs> and this one, try to keep up. Yeah, well, I got, yeah, I already lost I got a lot you. of sprinting to catch up here first. <laughs> well, you'll see why I started off with those because it's unbelievable what this guy got away with. Unbelievable. Charles Cullen was born on February 22nd, 1960 in West Orange, New Jersey. He was the last of eight children. His father died seven months after Charles was born. I'm just going to point out, though, this is like the third serial killer in like four weeks where the serial killer comes from a family of a large eight family, to ten kids, a large family. I know you have and Henry Lee Lucas, Israel Keys. They both had ten brothers and sisters. And now this guy's got eight. And Otis had a big had a big family, I believe, too. And they're the youngest. I don't know about Keys, but. The guys that I have talked about are all the youngest. Hey, it's not snowing outside, but it is raining. <laughs> Good, I'm happy I didn't water my flowers. Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm focused. He describes his childhood as terrible, having been bullied by classmates and his siblings. Mm. His first suicide attempt was at age nine. Holy cow, nine years old? His mother died in a car accident when Charles was 17 years old. Oh, my God. And he was absolutely devastated by his mother's death. And in his senior year of high school, he dropped out and joined the Navy. He passed basic training and the psychological exam required for submarine crews, since they have to spend so much time underwater in a cramped vessel. As much as miserable. As much as two months under underground i said underground not underground under the water for as long as two months that's insane yeah it's worse than quarantine a year into his service he was found by his leading petty officer sitting at the controls for the ship's missiles dressed not in his uniform but rather in a surgical mask gloves and scrubs Hmm? (laughs) colin did not give a reason for his behavior even after being disciplined He was released to a less pressured job, but shortly after the move, he attempted suicide and was committed to the Navy psychiatric ward. In fact, this scenario happened several times over the next few years. Oh, wow. He was given a medical discharge from the Navy in 1984, and he then enrolled in the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing. He actually did really well in the nursing school and even was elected class president. Oh, he graduated in 1986 and started working at St. Barnabas Medical Center burn unit in Livingston, New Jersey. 
Oh, wow. That's got to be rough. He married and had two daughters, but the marriage only lasted a few years and ended after a contentious divorce where he shared custody of his daughters. He later claimed that he actually wanted to quit nursing in 1993, but he had to keep doing it because he was expected to pay child support. Hmm. So it's almost like putting the blame yeah. on the court for what is to come. Cullen began murdering patients when he worked at St. Barnabas. His first victim was on June 11, 1988. Judge John Yango Sr. had been admitted after suffering from an allergic reaction to a blood-thinning medicine. Cullen injected a lethal overdose of medication to the patient. Cullen left St. Barnabas in January 1992 when the hospital authorities began looking into contaminated IV bags. It was later determined that Cullen was most likely the culprit and responsible for dozens of patient deaths. Oh my gosh. A month later, Cullen had a job at Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Here he killed three elderly women with an overdose of the heart medicine digoxin. This and insulin will continue to be his, quote, drug of choice. One of these victims actually told family members and hospital staff that a sneaky male nurse had injected her with something as she slept. Nobody really believed Nobody her. Her, her claims were unfounded, so ignored. Golly. In 1993, Cullen was arrested for trespassing. He had broken into a co-worker's home while she and her son slept. Oh, oh. He left without waking them. Oh, oh, that's crazy. He just watched them and then left. But then he started stalking the woman. Oh. She filed a police report. He was arrested and received one year of probation. The day after his arrest, Cullen made another attempt at suicide. He was treated at two separate psychiatric facilities for depression, but twice more attempted suicide before the end of 1993. Wow. He had returned back to work, and in September of 93, an elderly cancer patient reported that a male nurse who was unknown to her had injected her with something. She died the next day. Because of her son's protests and her death was not natural, the Warren Hospital administered a lie detector test to several nurses, including Cullen. He passed. He left Warren Hospital in the spring of 94 and was hired for the next three years at the Hunterton Medical Center in Flemington, New Jersey, working in the intensive care cardiac care unit. Gosh. Colin claims that he did not harm anyone in the first two years that he worked at Hunterdon, but then went on to kill five patients using digoxin between January and September of 1996. He quit working at Hunterdon and found work at Morriston, Morristown, sorry, Morristown Memorial Hospital for a short period of time before he was fired for poor work performance. Poor work performance. <laughs> I think he would like come late or not at all sometimes. I mean, it was more of his attendance. After being fired, Cullen was unemployed for six months. Now that's like, it's probably the, that's the time. longest time he was unemployed. Jeez. During which time he sought help for depression and was admitted to yet another psychiatric facility, but left after an, only a short time. Oh, he's so troubled. 
Obviously, the treatments did nothing to help the man. Neighbors reported seeing him chasing cats down the street in the middle of the night. There's a long pause there, and I was like, well, what are you going to say? <laughs> Sorry, I had, I had to <laughs> page. He would yell or talk to himself, and he was often seen making faces at people behind their backs. So, But yet hospitals are still hiring him. Very erratic, childlike behavior. I guess he could put on an act, too. Oh, that's so odd. Colin was hired by the Liberty Nursing and Rehab Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania in February 1998, where he worked on a ward with respirator-dependent patients. At Liberty, Colin killed a patient on his ward, but blamed another nurse. From there, he was fired after being accused of giving patients drugs at unscheduled times and being seen entering a patient's room with syringes in his hand. The patient was found with a broken arm, but no injections. <laughs> this is just blowing my mind, though. He's in, like, medical facilities. He's... Oh, we still have we still have hospitals here. I know. This is just blowing my mind already that he's gone to all of these hospitals and they just keep hiring him on. Do they not call references? Like... You're not allowed to say anything bad about a person on a reference. Okay. That is just so wrong. Oh. Well, that's why they I get made it now, the... But okay. I just, see? See, it makes sense now, but I just... That is just so wrong. These are people's lives at stake. Multiple people. From November 1998 to March 99, Colin worked at Easton Hospital in Easton, Pennsylvania. One month after he started working at Easton, he killed another patient. An autopsy showed lethal doses of digoxin in the victim's blood, but nothing pointed definitively to Cullen as the killer. He left Easton and started working at a burn unit of Lee Valley Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania, March 1999. He resigned a month later and took a job in the cardiatric care unit at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So... I know they can't obviously talk bad about this guy, but can't they see on his references the way he's bouncing? Not even yeah, but on his um, almost said autopsy. Jeez, Louise Beth, on his resume, on his resume, all these jobs. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Don't you think that'd be a red flag that he's worked at thirty bajillion different hospitals? I I will kind of get short time. I'll kind of get into that um, in in a minute. In January 2000, Cullen once again attempted suicide by lighting a charcoal grill in his bathroom. He tried to kill himself with carbon monoxide poisoning. Neighbors called 911 because of the smoke. Cullen was taken to a hospital and then another psychiatric facility, but was released the next day. But they just keep releasing him. He was released the next day. He worked at St. Luke's for three years, in which time he killed at least five patients and attempted to kill two more. It wasn't until a co-worker found empty vials of insulin and digoxin in the trash and became curious because these drugs were not street valuable at Remind all. Remind me what digoxin is? It's a heart medication. Right, that's what you said, okay. Colin was found guilty of taking the medication and was offered a deal by the hospital. Resign or be fired. Colin resigned in June of 2002. Co-workers did take their suspicions to the the Lee County District Attorney, but the case was dropped nine months later due to lack of evidence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
September 2002 found Cullen working in the critical care unit of the Somerset Medical Center in Somerville, New Jersey. Okay, this has just gone on far too long. Oh, should I stop? No. no. (laughs) I meant his killing people. (laughs) Here, Cullen killed at least 13 patients by mid-2003. 13? Using digoxin, insulin, and adding epinephrine to his murder tools. Because he killed five in three years. Now he killed 13 in one year. Cullen's erratic behavior was finally starting to become noticed. Co-workers... Oh, oh, good. (laughs) Jeez. Co-workers noticed him in rooms of patients that weren't his. The hospital computer system showed Cullen looking at records of patients that were not his as well as recording his requests for medication that his patients were not prescribed. And his medication requests were really odd, too. He would make the orders, cancel them right away, and then put in repetitive requests within minutes of each other. Along with this noted strange behavior, hospital officials were informed by the New Jersey Poison Information and Education System that there were at least four suspicious overdose deaths at the hospital. The officials delayed contacting the officials at the hospital, delayed contacting authorities until October, giving Colin the ability to kill at least five patients. Oh my gosh. In October 2003, Cullen's final victim died of low blood sugar, and the hospital called in the New Jersey State Police. He was fired from Somerset for lying on his application. Are you kidding me? And the police finally began to take notice of Cullen after looking into past suspicions about his involvement in prior deaths. They kept him under surveillance for several weeks and pulled his ex-co-worker and a good friend of his, nurse Amy Ridgway into the investigation, wiring her and using her to talk to Cullen. And at first she absolutely was just like, he's a really good friend of mine. He's really sweet. He would never do this. You know, this is not, but then she started really kind of noticing things. Uh Um, and then she agreed to, to do this. Did they find anything? Did he say anything? They were finally given enough evidence to arrest him because she would have conversations with him. And Oh, good. Colin was arrested on December 12th, 2003. Way too late, though. And charged with one count of murder and one count of attempted murder. That's all they could, that's that's all they, they could find. That's that all they had yeah. on him. Two days later, Colin admits to detectives that he had murdered at least 40 patients during Holy his cow. during his 16-year career as a nurse. In his plea agreement, Cullen agreed to be cooperative with authorities, and in turn, he got out of the death penalty. Now, I question this. He attempted suicide, I don't know, how many times, and yet he doesn't want the death penalty. That's sick. Does that make sense to you? No, it doesn't make any sense. And and I'm, I'm wondering what what it would he, be on his terms. What did he do to commit suicide? Was it really, was it just an attempt? Mm-hmm. Was he serious about it? Mm-hmm. You know, is kind of what I'm asking. I'm going to bring a charcoal grill into your, into your so bathroom. It's just, I don't know. You'd think, no, I'm not going to say that. He admitted to overdosing patients in order to end their suffering. But records show that not all his victims were terminal patients. Oh, God. And in fact, 
were expected to recover before he killed them. Oh, that's even worse. His compassion obviously had turned into compulsion. And killing became an outlet when his life became too stressful for him to handle. He admitted to detectives that he lived life in a, quote, fog, mostly because he drank so much. Mm. And that he does not remember how many patients he actually killed or even why he chose the patients he killed. He then absolutely denies killing at a given hospital. But then when he was confronted by the evidence, he admits to the killing. Oh, no, another one Uh, of those. Yeah. He pleaded guilty in a New Jersey court to killing 13 patients and attempting to kill two others while at Somerset Hospital, one hospital. He later pleaded guilty to killing three more patients in New Jersey. And in November 2004, he pleaded guilty in Pennsylvania court to killing six patients and attempting to kill three others. Now, in court in Pennsylvania, for some weird, you said random, this is random. I love random facts. They're the best. So while in court, he continued to say out loud, really loud to the judge, Your Honor, you need to step down. What? He kept saying this like, Your Honor, you need to step down. Your Honor, you need to step down. He just kept saying it over and over and over again. Was he trying to get like the insane... The judge... I don't know why he was saying it. The judge told me quiet. The, you know, they, I mean, it uh, was sir, just like, excuse me, please be quiet. And finally, because he wouldn't shut up, they had to restrain him and gag him with a cloth and duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> what? To shut him up. <laughs> and even then he was like, he put a cloth in his mouth and duct taped his mouth and in court while his court was in. And, and, and even then he was going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> are you kidding me <laughs> oh my god that is insane he didn't make a good impression on that judge i wouldn't think so <laughs> the judge sentenced him to seven life sentences in prison for the seven uh, seven known lives he had taken in pennsylvania that's seven known ones oh my gosh on march 2nd 2006 colin was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences in new jersey that's on top of the seven Mm-hmm. In Pennsylvania. Yes. He is not eligible for parole until 2403. 2403. Good. He is currently at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. So now the question is, how the hell did he get hired over and over and over again? Seriously. Even with his history of depression and suicide. That's what I was just going to say. He's been in and out of different psychiatric wards and it's got to be in his medical. Like he's working in the medical field. Wouldn't they want to see that? That just blows my mind. And the number of deaths that followed in his wake. There's a few reasons. I don't know if these are all of them, but. One being the national shortage of nurses. Uh, I understand that. So this is they still were putting people's lives in danger. And the other being no reporting safety net for hospitals against liability if they were to ID nurses with mental health or employment issues. So not right. That's why they now have a safety net. Which brings me back to my opening where I said that the safety were net you has lost now. Me? <laughs> yeah has now been put in place to protect employers through this through 
this Patient Safety Act and Enhancement Act, and mostly due to this little mousy-looking nurse named Charles Cullen. I'm not calling him names. I'm just describing him. <laughs> he is this tiny, petite little man, uh, like un- really? unnoticeable kind of mm-hmm. little man. Well, clearly unnoticeable. <laughs> He's going around killing people in 30 bajillion hospitals. Experts have estimated that he may be responsible for 400 hospital deaths. No. Three to four. 300 to 400 hospital deaths. Are you kidding But we'll me? never know we'll the never exact know. number. Cullen worked the graveyard shifts, mostly being unsupervised. Believe it or not, many of the medical charts are incomplete or even completely missing. So they can't go back. No. His method of killing using common drugs makes it impossible to separate Cullen's victims from the hospital's, like, natural deaths. I am just, I don't even know what word to use. So I'm going to add a little story now uh, from when he was in prison. Okay. Okay. Colin received a letter from the mother of Aaron Peckman. Colin had met Aaron maybe mm, once. You see, Aaron is the brother of Colin's ex-girlfriend, who happens to also be the mother of his youngest daughter, who he has never seen. Anyway, another story. Back to the letter, which was really a newspaper article and a note saying, Can you help? The article was a public interest item asking for a kidney donation. Aaron had somehow contracted strep, which had moved to his kidneys. I didn't even know this could happen. He, had, he was in construction, and he cut himself. What? And it just got so infected and he just kind of ignored it. You know, it moved to his kidneys. And by the time he did go to the doctor, both kidneys had died. And he had to, and he had to have dialysis three times a week. But even with that, if Aaron didn't get a new kidney soon, he would die. Oh, my gosh. Colin wanted to actually help. But the chances of his being a perfect match to be a kidney donor was not probable. The hospital sent tubes for Cullen's blood, and then the results came back. Ta-da! It was a match, wasn't Cullen it? was a perfect six-for-six six antigen match. Of course. So I read this, and I thought, oh, great. This guy can finally do something worthwhile and save a life. Mm-mm. Not so easy, as I was to find out. You see, people didn't trust Cullen. I don't. Was he wanting to get into the hospital so he could kill someone else or maybe a way to kill himself? Mm. Then the trial in PA happened where he had to be gagged. And that didn't help his cause either. (laughs) Cullen is quoted as saying, I know people see me as trying to control things. They think I'm trying to get something out of it. I grant that I certainly have done some very bad things. I've taken lives. But does that prevent me from doing something positive? Not only was there this doubt about Cullen and the no trust, no trusting him, but a lot of people saw the scenario as maybe doing a favor for Cullen, not seeing it, this is a way to save a man's life. Yeah. See? You know, he would just be doing it for himself. And then there was the usual state and private institutions to coordinate insurance 
And for Cullen, he would have to be guarded 24-7 in the hospital. so much. As for the kidney itself, who was going to pay for a helicopter? Because the drive from Cullen's New Jersey hospital to Aaron's Long Island hospital would be too chancy with traffic and construction. Mm -hmm. There's a time limit to get the organ there. Yeah, of course. I've seen Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) The longer these unknowns kept sitting there, the more time went on. Colin's donor test was valid for only a year, and Ernie was nearing the end. Fourteen days before the donor test became invalid, Colin was taken to the hospital in the dark of night. Oh. He was given a fake name, Johnny Quest, to help hide his identity. His kidney was taken and then flown to Ernie's waiting body. When asked why he killed so many patients and now was willing to give his kidney to a stranger, Cullen explained, I saw that I was stopping pain, removing pain. Sometimes the pain was with the patient who was suffering. Sometimes it was with the pain of families being ripped apart. Sometimes it was the lives of patients that would only be tied up in an endless series of procedures and complications and pain. I knew it was illegal and that it wasn't my choice to make, but I felt compelled to do what I did. As for the kidney donation, he said in his quiet, unemotional voice, I wanted to be helpful. It was something I could do. It was something that was needed. I was asked to do it, and it was possible. I felt compelled to do it. Well, I'm going to look at a positive on this. Yeah, yeah, you always do. (laughs) Think that, you know, he saved someone's life. So if he did it for himself or if he really did it for, for Ernie, regardless Ernie's life was saved but that doesn't make up for the 400 people he could have possibly killed possibly I know but I think he um I think if I remember correctly prison life really kind of suits him I mean if it could suit anybody is because it's very structured very structured I was just gonna say that and he basically doesn't have to think he's told when to eat he's told when to sleep he's told when to you know exercise And he just, uh, yeah, he doesn't have to think. Right. So, no, that makes sense. And he is a very, very, um, very disturbed. He's very troubled. Stressed. I don't know. Person. Interesting. I cannot wrap my mind around it that it went on that long. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. But he played between two states. So that probably had an, a bearing on it also. That's still just. I know. Crazy. And. You heard those dates. It wasn't like it was 50 years ago. No. No. Oh, it's way too many people. Very interesting. Thank you, Mom. You're welcome, daughter. Alrighty. So, when you told me to pick a haunted location in Pennsylvania, I got super excited. There are so many places in Pennsylvania that are haunted. Oh. Some I've experienced firsthand. Yes. I started Googling and searching to try to narrow my story down, and I seriously can't express to you how overwhelmed I was and how excited I was. Because there's so many choices? There's so many chooses, yes. Chooses? I said choices. (laughs) Choices, Jesus, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I am an American history buff, so I looked at places like Gettysburg or even... Hershey, Pennsylvania, that is said to be haunted by Mr. Hershey Chocolate himself. I was excited to see that there was a house in New Hope, Pennsylvania, haunted by 
Aaron Burr, sir. <laughs> it was the house that he ran away to. She's looking at me so confused. It was the house that Aaron Burr ran away to to hide after he shot Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Thank you, Disney Plus, for me and my husband's obsession with Hamilton. Clothes get tugged there, and apparitions have been seen there, too. Ooh. I also could go on and on about Carlisle Barracks in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I lived there for a year when I was a freshman in high school, while my dad was attending the war college there. I witnessed many things firsthand there. Like, literally a few weeks after moving in, I saw a full, it looked like a real child, a real Native American boy walking into my bathroom. I remember you told me about this. It's yeah. <laughs> and keep in mind, this was in the middle of the day and oh, there was nobody there. And then I come to find out weeks later that the area was used as a school for the Native American children Ooh. back in the Civil War. You had no idea. No idea. Interesting. And how did you know it was a Native American boy? Because so my room was in an attic. Mm hmm. And you looked down this hallway and you could see the bathroom at the end of the hall. You looked down a staircase and you'd see this hallway and there'd be a bathroom right to the right. And it looked to be about a 13 year old boy standing there in the hallway. Oh, not a little boy. This no. is okay. All right. And could see, I could see moccasins. I could see. It was clothing. I could see everything. I saw a human being standing there and I was like, oh. What? Like, I just wanted to go pee. Like, what is going on? And he looked at me, turned and walked into the bathroom. And I was like, oh, so I like I went down there and there's nobody in there. And it's in the middle of the day. It was the craziest. That was actually my very first experience firsthand seeing an apparition like that. Mm -hmm. It was insane. And then a few weeks later, I find out that the whole area was used as a Native American school. During the Civil War, trying That's to domesticate nuts. the Native American children. It was, oh, it was mind boggling. There's so many more stories I could share, but I had to mention that. But that's not what I'm going to talk about in this podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Moving on. I am going to share some spooky ookies about Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Didn't we have a listener that yes, asked for this? Yes, we had a few listeners request this. Okay. So you ask and you shall receive. So Eastern State Penitentiary held many of America's notorious criminals in its day, like Slick Willie Sutton and even Al Capone, Scarface. Oh. Over 75,000 prisoners went through there. Its website, www.easternstate.org, claims that it was once the most famous and expensive prison in the world. Today it stands in ruin, a, quote, Haunting world of crumbling cell blocks and empty guard towers. I bet it's creepy as all get out. I want to go so badly. The prison operated from 1829 to 1971. When it opened in October of 1829, it was considered to be the world's first true penitentiary. It started as basically, basically like a social experiment. Each prisoner had his own cell and each cell was a solitary confinement cell oh no talking no socializing not even a window in the doorway they believe oh my gosh so there weren't bars no they were oh how oh. awful it's insane mom it's crazy they believe solitary confinement could be a rehabilitation of sorts uh you know like they really wanted to make men sit 
with themselves and God think about what they had done. This was the first time this kind of prison was used. When the penitentiary started, it became a model for more than 300 prisons worldwide. Oh my gosh. So how long were these prisoners supposed to sit in these cells? Forever, whatever their sentence was. So if they were sentenced to 25 years, no matter what you were sentenced to, a month. So they couldn't get out for good behavior or anything? No. Whatever their sentence was. Oh my gosh. It was Gosh. always solitary confinement. So they didn't go out and exercise? No. Even when they were sent outside, it was a solitary confinement cell outside. And I'll get there. Residents of Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin included, wanted to build a, quote, true penitentiary, a prison designed to create genuine regret and penance in the criminal's heart, unquote. Benjamin Franklin was part of the group that decided this. Okay. So at this time, prison, I guess, wasn't really, like, taken seriously. So it's 1829. If there's a bad guy, you just throw him in jail for some time, and then you let them go. There really was no... Thought to it? No. It was just throw them in until you think they're better kind of a thing. And so they wanted to take reform seriously. So when they built the prison, they had that in mind. Every single cell, every one was built as solitary confinement with only sunlights in the ceilings, like windows in the ceiling, whatever you call those. Skylights. Skylights. Thank you. So that they could look up and talk to God. They were supposed to So just, there's only one level? I mean, certain cells wouldn't even have those skylights. Just darkness? Mm -hmm. Yes. They were supposed to just be in silence with God. No talking, just silence with God. Like I mentioned, they were allowed outside, but even then they were in confinement cells outside. Had to be quiet. And as they transported them, they were forced to wear a hood over their heads so they couldn't see anyone. No one could see them and they could just still be alone with God. Oh my gosh. So I guess this solitary confinement where the prisoners had their own cells was called the Pennsylvania system. And there's another kind of system called the New York system, which is where prisoners were forced to work together and like mm -hmm. build together. So an example of that is like Sing Sing. Mm -hmm. uh, the state pen was laid out like a wagon wheel with the center surrounded by like spokes of long hallways of cell blocks. There were seven cell blocks and then there was, they were towered on one another. It's a very large prison. I read that the doorways into each cell were made very small. So they believe that this was to the cell. There's two things I read. Either this would keep the cellmates from like charging out of their rooms at officers. Oh, sure. Slow them down right. because they'd have to duck. But I also read that it was related to penance, which makes sense with how it was all built. So they had to bow when they entered and bow when they mm. came out. Sure. It was supposed to humble them or whatever. It wasn't until 1913 that solitary confinement started to become less strict. But that's not saying things got easier for the prisoners. Torture became a big part of Eastern State at this time. Oh, no. They would hire the strictest of strict wardens for this prison. God, it's, it, it'd be torture to just be locked up in this small... Help. And this is maximum security prison, so this is where the baddest of the bad guys right. went. One of these wardens' names was Warden Smith, and they called him hard-boiled. I don't know why. <laughs> and he enforced some pretty dark stuff. Sometimes he would just starve them. Oh. Uh, there was a bathroom, a bath room 
kind of outside and they'd be dunked into this bath and then shackled to the wall in the dead of winter. It only happened in the wintertime until ice would form on their skin. They also had what they called the mad chair, which a prisoner would be tied to by leather belts, super, super tight, and it would cut off circulation sometimes. A lot of amputations had to happen. Mm-mm. And they would just be left there tied up for days, no food, nothing, just left in their muck right there in that chair. Oh. Then there was the iron gag. Sounds a little medieval. And it was. You're supposed to be quiet. Silence. No talking. So this was kind of used for that a lot. It was like a metal clamp with little razors that would be clamped around their tongues. Oh, geez. Then there was chains attached to this metal clamp that would be tied around the prisoner's waist as well as their wrists behind their back. Oh, no. So if they moved so any movement caused the razors to slice their tongues. Oh, my God. This is awful. And majority of the time this would cause them to actually bleed out and die. So there was actually I read that some prisoners would just scream in the middle of the night because they just wanted to end it. They were done. They wanted the iron gag. They were done. Another thing they had was the Klondikes, which were solitary confinement cells that had been secretly built by guards in the mechanical space underneath a cell block, like literally a rat and roach infested hole. These holes, if we can even call them that, were basically just barely wide enough to stand up in. Mm. In 1945, several inmates were made to go to the Klondikes after they were caught trying to escape. These are just some fun stories I wanted to share with you guys. Those are fun. Those are horrible. There were 12 inmates, one of them being Slick Willie Sutton, the, quote, Babe Ruth of bank robbers. He says that he planned the escape, but he was also kind of known to be a talker. Although in the 11 years he was in this prison, he had attempted to escape at least five times. (laughs) Anyway, in the span of a year, the 12 inmates worked a two-man team taking 30-minute shifts. They would use spoons and flattened, flattened cans to dig. They dug a ventilated tunnel through the prisoner's brick walls and through the sewer system like the movie the great escape they kept the dirt in their pockets and they would scatter it in the yard i like shawshank there was a 31 inch opening through a wall in a in cell 68 hidden behind a false wall the tunnel went 12 feet straight down into the ground and then 11 feet beyond the prison walls on the morning of april 3rd 1945 the 12 inmates snuck off to cell 68 on their way to breakfast and made their escape all 12 were captured by the end of the day. <laughs> oh, God, all that work. Oh and gosh. most of them were sent to the Klondikes. Yeah. Funny side story about Slick Willie Sutton, though, was he was one of them that was sent to the Klondikes. And then he was actually transferred to the escape proof Holmesburg prison. That's what it was. They literally like called it the escape proof prison where he escaped <laughs> yes, and did Willie. not get captured again for six years. Oh, he escaped he that escaped. time. The tunnel from cell 68 was eventually filled up with ash and concrete by guards. But an interesting thing to mention was that in the 30s, 30 other incomplete tunnels were discovered while they were doing renovations. Holy smokes. There was only one successful escape from Eastern State during its 142 operational years. There were six inmates that formed a ladder. 
The latter was separated into five foot sections and disguised as tabletops in the inmates' cells. One day, the six of them used their ladder and climbed over the east wall. Five were captured. Leo Callahan was never seen from again. Never caught. Never. With the torture and disease. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Things weren't the greatest at Eastern State Penitentiary. There is a death ledger that they have at the museum that's there now that shows so many suicides. I mean, these men were in solitary confinement and it's a maximum security prison. Just think about it. Like, not that this justifies their crimes, but a lot of men in that situation are probably already a little mentally unstable. Exactly. And then they're placed in solitary confinement. I would go crazy in solitary confinement. There were several times that inmates would attack officers. There was an inmate, Joseph Taylor. He worked with sewing machines for his job. And one day he disassembled part of the sewing machine and used the parts he took to beat a guard to death outside of the solitary confinement cell outside. After he killed the guard, he just went back into the cell and took a nap. (laughs) He had been convinced that the guards were trying to poison him for weeks. So that's why he did it. So honestly, he kind of sounds a little mentally disturbed. And then he's stuck in solitary confinement. Famous gangster Al Capone served eight months in this prison for carrying a concealed weapon in 1929. Some say he was really using that opportunity to hide out because oh. it was right after the um, St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. Uh-huh. So... That's just the assumption because he lived pretty comfortably in his cell. It was a solitary confinement cell. There was no sky roof, whatever. Like it would look like a little den underground, but he had paintings. He had a radio, a lamp and a desk, but guards and prisoners alike would hear him screaming with fear and yelling at some unseen person or thing in his cell. Get out when no one was in there. Capone did this? Yes. Rumor has it that he was being haunted by Jimmy Clark, a victim of Al Capone's St. Valentine's Day massacre. Maybe he was, or maybe the solitary confinement was getting to him too. But sometimes he would just jolt awake in the middle of the night, scared, terrified of an unseen thing. Kind of like my dog is doing right now. What's he doing? He's scared of something in the corner. He's scared. Like he's legitimately scared. Hey, Pooh. That was really weird. You jumped up and like... After the prison closed in 1971, it was purchased by the city of Philadelphia with the intent of redeveloping the area, but it sat abandoned. It wasn't until 1988 the mayor was petitioned to open it for the public, and in 1994 it finally opened as a museum with history tours, ghost tours being very popular there, of course. (laughs) There is a virtual tour on their website, Goodness, I really want to go there in real life. You can see what the cells looked like. Uh, Only a few. Like you can see Al Capone's cell. Others are still filled with rubble. The walls are peeling back like old buildings do. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are still open for tours. Actually, they reopened on August 14th for their in-person tours again. All right. Enough about all that. Let's talk about the ghosts. Is Eastern State Penitentiary haunted? I can't see why it wouldn't be. looks haunted, (laughs) for sure. The place was filled with hardcore criminals, disease, madness, suicide, murder, and torture. Misery. Darkness fills the building. 
Tour guides at the penitentiary claim that cell block 12 is known for echoing voices and what they call cackling. They actually have this laughter that they hear regularly, and it starts as laughter and slowly turns into screams. They also hear what sounds like shuffling feet in the gravel of the cell block, almost like shackles are holding this unseen force's feet together, making it tough to walk. And these sounds are not heard just at night. They are heard in the middle of the day. And the sound has been captured on digital recorders and video several times. Cell block six has shadow figures. There are many videos that people have taken day and night that show these shadow figures. See, this makes sense to me, though, that the spirits are there during the day also. Yeah. Not just Some nighttime. place is haunted. You would think that every time of day, night, right. there'd be something. They don't come just at night. Right. Cell block four has ghostly faces that will pop up. Like, you'd blink and there'd be a face right in front of your face. <laughs> Ew. And you'd blink and it'd be gone. Where they did the water bath torture... People claim to be very cold in that room all the time. And all over the prison, you hear footsteps, wails, and whispers. So many ghost hunting shows have been there. Obviously, ghost, ghost adventures. adventures. Okay, so, you know, if we mention ghost adventures, I have to give a little Zachism from the episode. <laughs> he claimed that Eastern State Penitentiary was, quote, a smorgasbord of evil, unquote. So anyway, let's share some ghost stories from all these episodes I watched because, you know, my life is so hard. I just sat down with my glass of wine and watched many ghost hunting shows on Eastern State. <laughs> there was a lady that was interviewed who said that she and her friends were in the old shower room on a tour. Keep in mind, it's in the middle of the day. So they're in the showers and a piece of soap falls on the ground. And she decides to make a joke and kind of keep it light because some of her friends were scared. And she says... <laughs> don't drop don't, the soap don't bend over to pick it up the next thing she knew someone smacked her on the butt <gasps> no she turns around giggling thinking that somebody like one of because she's in a group of friends right there's nobody behind her it's a wall <laughs> <laughs> remember how i mentioned the doorways were low well there was one occurrence when a man was walking out of a cell and he said that he ducked but as he was walking through, there was a pressure on like the lower portion of his head. So he ended up clonking his head on the doorframe. Ow. Okay. I don't know if I even believe this. You clonked your head and blamed it on a ghost. Like, come on. <laughs> this is something I would do. There was some intelligent knocking. What did you call that in the Vermont episode? Eddie Brothers. Yeah. Ghost rapping. Ghost rapping. And this is not Yeah. Done. Um, they would ask, Are you in the cell? And there would be two knocks. And to test it to make sure it wasn't just like the right sound at the right time, he goes, Okay, knock when I say three. One, is Obi in here? Don't, why? Oh. <laughs> Holy. My mom's dog's a freak, and I count to three, and he freaks out. Okay. One, two, three. And there are three knocks crazy there were several evps and disembodied voices captured on a lot of the shows i watched but here's my question they were in solitary confinement they knew not to make any noise so why would we be capturing prisoners talking because they're talking in their afterlife i don't i don't know but that's just a thought but many evps say things like 
I'm lonely or hungry. Maybe it's their emotions talking, you know? That's just sad, though, still. There were a lot of disembodied screams heard and recorded. There were a few in the Ghost Adventures episode that really kind of sent shivers down my spine, actually. One story told by a tour guide, uh, there was a locksmith. His name was Gary Johnson. He came to remove a lock that was over 100 years old on a group of cells that hadn't been opened in a very long time. They believe that he released spirits when he broke the lock and opened the area. Something happened to him when he opened that door that terrified him, and he can't even really describe it, and he hates talking about it. But he said it kind of like he gives bits and pieces in different episodes. He doesn't go into depth when he talks to people about it Mm -hmm. because it really scared him. But he said it almost was like an out-of-body experience. He remembers opening the door and, like, all these faces flying at him. Oh. He said the walls looked like they were moving from all the shadow figures he saw. He explained it as like an overwhelming dark matter around him. All these shadow figures just like rushed him. Oh my gosh, that would be terrifying. Super spooky, ooky for sure. Like I mentioned, the prison is open for self-guided as well as guided tours. They've worked to renovate it to keep it safe for visitors. But the prison was open for 142 years. So they want to renovate it, but they can't like renovate it to a certain year. No. So what they've decided to do is keep it as a stabilized ruin, keep it preserved in this ruinous state, keeping it safe for visitors to explore. Mm-hmm. Visitors, staff, and guards all back up the haunted claims that things happen at Eastern State Penitentiary. Spooky. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if I would want to go there. What? This just sounds a little too intense. Too dark for you? Too dark. Too dark. Oh, I would just... All that pain. I wouldn't even want to necessarily go for the ghost tour, but just to see the prison would just be, again, that's just my history buff, loving any kind of museum. But just, that would be so interesting to me to see it firsthand. I probably watched eh, five ghost hunting shows, (laughs) and I'll put the links to them. That's five hours. And that's going through, well, not all of them were an hour, mom. (laughs) And it wasn't all in one sitting. I do have two young toddlers to take care of. I have and a life. sleep. Yeah. But just seeing the prison through those shows was just so intriguing in itself that I would love to see it firsthand. Interesting. How horrible. Oh, I know. I mean, prison is not supposed to be like the most comfortable a country bed and club, breakfast, no. but I like how I said bed and breakfast and you say country club. <laughs> <laughs> you get the gist. But I just think that is just so horrific. The end. Pennsylvania, way to bring us down. Oh, <laughs> eggnog definitely cheers me up. <laughs> nice visit to Pennsylvania. Yes. Thank you guys for the recommendation. Keep them coming. Please. And if you've been to Eastern State Penitentiary, please send me pictures. Please. <laughs> You can email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon, Facebook, and Instagram, Killer Hangover Podcast. And next week, I chose a true crime from Ohio, again, because of a great recommendation from a listener. Okay, so I'll have to see what paranormal lies in Ohio. (sighs) Another good one, Mom. Another good drink, too. Oh, oh, I love this drink. Cheers, Mama. Cheers.
Love you, kid.